0: You know, closed doors are really awkward and they're really difficult. I personally, I don't like closed doors. But I'll tell you somebody who hates closed doors more than I do. And that would be my dog, Barnabas. I know you're thinking, Cheryl, not another Barnabas example. But when your kids grow up, move out of the house and you get a dog, you're left with dog examples. And so Barnabas is my example of hating closed doors. Brian and I will often have to leave Barnabas at home when we come to church or uh, we're going out to dinner with friends. And we'll open the glass door and we'll ask Barnabas to go out. And he'll look at us like, I'm not falling for this one again. I remember the last time you opened the door, I walked out and... Then you closed it and you locked it and I wasn't allowed back in. And he gets this really suspicious look on his face every time we open the door. Now, sometimes he'll even ring the bells because he wants to go out. But the minute that we open the door, he looks up at us and says, you know what, something's up here. And he goes over and he sits on his pillow. Not only that, when Brian and I have company over, sometimes we'll close the door of our room. Barnabas will come upstairs, bark at the closed door. We'll let him in our room. And if we close the door, he'll go back over to the door and he'll bark again because he wants out. You see, my dog just hates closed doors, but he's so much like us. We hate closed doors, too. And we're not alone in that. The children of Israel, they hated closed doors. Think about Exodus chapter 14. The children of Israel are complaining. They've got the uh, pie Hagemoth. They've got Mount Migdal on both sides. They've got the Red Sea in front of them. And they've got the Egyptian army bearing down on them. Everything looks like a closed door. And they're so angry with Moses. But then what does God do? He opens an unexpected door. He literally parts the Red Sea. He does the impossible. And He brings them across on dry land. You see, again, our God opens doors. Um There's a saying that, Go something like this. When God closes a door, He opens a window. Well, I want to go further than that because when God closes a door, He's opened another door. Now, it's hard for us because all of us have had to deal with a closed door of a relationship or a closed door of a friendship. Maybe that friend has died. Maybe that friend has moved away. Maybe that friend doesn't like you anymore. And your first... Um, your first... Uh, you know, action or reaction when you get news is to want to call them and to talk it over. And then you're like, they're not there. I have that a lot with my dad, something my kids or my grandkids will do. And I want to call my dad immediately and tell him, is this amazing? But I'll remember it's a closed door. It's just a closed door. And those closed doors are so hard for us. There's the closed door of a job. You might not have even liked that job, but when that door closes, it's hard. A door of a location um, that we lived in or maybe you would like to vacation that's no longer available. The door of an activity that perhaps you can no longer do because of health. Or a closed door to a food that you used to eat when you were a kid and never gain weight. Now you just look at it and you gain weight, and it's a closed door, or a closed door of opportunity. You, you know, you were hoping that this thing would come through, and suddenly the door shuts. But we spend far too much time pining at the closed doors in our lives, sitting outside the door, and like Barnabas, just barking and crying and begging. Um, not enough time looking for the open doors that God has given us to enter to walk through and to enjoy what's inside. Our preoccupation is so often at the closed door rather than looking and enjoying the open doors we met, we lament the closing, we sit at its base and we often cry Lord, Why did you allow it? Again, going back to the children of Israel. Think about it. They kept complaining to Moses about not being able to go back to Egypt. And because of their complaining and constant desire for the closed door of Egypt, that generation never entered into the open door of the promised land that God wanted to take them to. The resurrected Jesus proclaimed to the Church of Philadelphia in Revelation 3, 7-8a, These things says He who is holy, He who is true, He who has the key of David, He who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no man can shut it. The doors Jesus has opened to us are far more far more wonderful glorious, divine than the doors that he has shut. Things that were formerly shut to us have now been divinely opened by Jesus' accomplishment on the cross and victory over death. In 1986, my Aunt Esi spoke at Vista, our church in Vista. It was a women's gathering. And she chose as her text Luke chapter 24. She was 83 years old at the time. And she called it the chapter of the opens. And as best as I remember, I want to I want to plagiarize that study and present it to you today. In Luke chapter 24, we have seven opens. We have an open tomb, we have open eyes, we have open hearts, open scriptures, open understanding, open promises, and open heaven. All because Jesus Has risen from the dead. We have three different groups of people. We have women at the tomb, two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and the disciples gathered in the upper room. We have four different locations. We have the tomb, the Emmaus road, the upper room, and the hill near Bethany. Beginning in Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12, we have a group of women who are coming early to the tomb of Jesus. The last time they saw Jesus, his lifeless body was being wrapped by Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea and being placed into Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. We're told that Joseph and Nicodemus had come with 75 pounds of spices to embalm the body of Jesus. And the women stood afar off just watching this. They were unprepared uh, for the burial of Jesus. Now, the next three days, the women were unable to do anything. There was the Sabbath. There was then the high Sabbath or, you know, the, the normal Sabbath, Saturday. And they couldn't get to the body of Jesus. But after that, then they gathered the spices. They were ready to come and anoint the body of Jesus. I think this is typical women looking on going, they're only using 75 pounds of spices. We could do so much better. And women, of course, they wanted to add their spices, their tender touch to Jesus. And they came early in the morning. We're told in Mark chapter 16, verse 5, that their preoccupation was the large stone that barred the entrance to the tomb. They weren't concerned about the seal of Caesar across the stone tomb. They weren't concerned about the guards that were there to keep anyone from taking the body of Jesus. No, their greatest concern was the fact that this huge stone, which was too heavy for them to roll away, was keeping them from the body of Jesus. However, when they arrived at the tomb, they found that the tomb was open and the stone had been rolled away. The women entered into the tomb area expecting to find the body of Jesus. And they were perplexed, dismayed, confused when they didn't see Jesus' lifeless body inside the tomb. Instead, they were met by two men in shining garments. And the men were so glorious in appearance that the women were afraid and they bowed their faces to the earth. These divine messengers then questioned the women. Why do you seek the living among the dead? In other words, they said, women, you are looking for Jesus in the wrong place. He's not in a dead, lifeless tomb. He's alive and he's among the living. Then they announced, he is not here, but he is risen Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. The women expected a closed tomb. They were going to exert their strength to open it. What they found instead was an open tomb. Their expectations had been too low. They wanted to anoint a dead, lifeless Jesus. They had planned to mourn. And cry over their loss, but instead they found an open tomb, exquisite glory, angelic beings, divine revelation, he is not here but is risen, and the power of Jesus' fulfilled word. God opened the tomb. In Matthew 28, 2 through 4, we read, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The tomb was open not to let Jesus out, but to show that he was not in the tomb, it was not only that death could not hold Jesus, but rocks and stones and graves and walls and, and fortresses, nothing, nothing can hold Jesus back. The impediment to Jesus was not a Roman seal, not armed guards, not a huge, heavy, immovable stone, not a tomb. No, God dealt with that. The only impediment to Jesus is a closed heart. It's an unbelieving heart, a heart that won't believe. The women, seeing all this glory, ran to tell the disciples, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and they told the disciples what they had seen. And the disciples listened to these women because of the hardness of their heart, because of the closed condition of their heart. They relegated the women's testimony to hysteria of women. Now, doesn't that bother you just a little bit? I hate it when I'm passionate about something and a man will say, oh, yep, a woman. Oh, that makes me mad. Or they thought it was idle tales. In other words, like the hallucinations or the exaggerations of women. Peter and John, though, they felt something else because they went running to the tomb. And in John chapter 20, John records that Peter stepped inside the tomb while he waited outside. And Peter saw the linen cloths lying by themselves and the handkerchief that covered Jesus' face folded in a different place. And Peter was perplexed, but John records that when he saw When he heard, he believed. Going on in this chapter, we find more openings. In verses 13 through 32, Cleopas and another disciple are walking on the road that leads from Jerusalem to Emmaus. It's a seven-mile walk. And as they're walking this, they're dejected. They're talking together about their disappointment, their disillusionment, and their dead desires, what seemed like closed doors. But while they're walking, while they're sad, Jesus himself comes and he walks alongside of them. In fact, Luke tells us that he drew near to them while they walked and he asked them about their conversation. Their eyes were restrained, so they could not recognize them. And Jesus asked, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Jesus is saying, what type of conversation is this? You see, how would you label this conversation? It's sad. It's dejected. It's disappointed. It's Delusion. They're trying to process. They're trying to tuck over what their feelings identify, how they feel. It was a conversation of grief. It was a conversation about closed doors and of dashed hopes. Cleopas anger even seems to boil over a little bit when he answers Jesus rather rudely saying, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? In other words, how is it that you didn't hear? Everybody in Jerusalem knows what was going on. It was the Passover time. It was the talk of Jerusalem. Jesus was publicly paraded through the streets of Jerusalem. He was publicly executed by Rome. And no one could stop it. Nobody The condemnation and crucifixion of Jesus was not secret. Most of Israel was present in Jerusalem at that time for Passover. Jesus was what had been talked about throughout the Passover week. Many there were giving testimony about his healing, about his word, about his touch, about his work in their life. Only a week earlier, he had been heralded by the crowds. As the king, Hosanna, the son of David. Publicly, he had cleansed the temple and driven the money changers and the merchandisers out. And Cleopas is saying to Jesus, how can you not know what everyone else in Israel knows? But Jesus asked Cleopas about these things that had tr- transpired in Jerusalem in order to draw Cleopas and the other disciple out in order to open their hearts and to speak into their hearts. Often, Jesus' way of dealing with our hearts is first for us to pour out our hearts, to empty our hearts before Him. In Psalm chapter 62, we're told, pour out your heart before Him. He is a refuge for us. The Lord wants us to entrust Him with our disillusionment, with our hurts, with our pains, with our disappointments. You know, sometimes no one is safe with those things but Jesus. But oftentimes I find that we're trying to pray uh, the sanctimonious spiritual prayers. We're trying to pray the prayers we think Jesus wants to hear instead of the honest Prayers of our heart, Lord, I'm hurting. Lord, I don't understand. Lord, I'm disillusioned. Lord, why did you allow it? These are the honest prayers that Jesus can deal with. And Cleopas and the other disciple, perhaps if they had recognized Jesus, they would have prayed sanctimonious prayers, or they wouldn't have been honest in their conversation. But because they their eyes are restrained at this point, they're honest. And Cleopas answered with all his past hopes, the seeming closed doors of his life. He said, These are the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who we had hoped or we thought was a prophet, God's representative, the spokesperson of God's word, who is mighty indeed and power before God and all the people. Verse 19. He's saying Jesus was so authentic. And Jesus did what no one else did in the sight of God and in the sight of man. He healed. He raised the dead. He calmed the storms. He fed the multitudes. He confounded the wise. He condemned the self righteous and the religious hypocrites. He spoke the truth always. And he spoke it with authority and grace. He cleansed the temple. And he said the chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned. The innocent Jesus tried and found worthy of death for no specific crime. It was so unjust. It was so wrong. But then it was done by the religious elite, those who were supposed to be upholding the spiritual life of Israel. They were the ones who were supposed to exemplify and lead the Jews in adherence to the scripture, obedience to the law, truth, and justice. But they had compromised and conspired with Rome, to kill the just, the holy, the loving, the compassionate one. And then Cleopas says, We were hoping, past tense, that he would redeem Israel. Verse 21, Cleopas' hope was dashed. He was hoping that Jesus would bring salvation, that Israel would turn and accept Jesus as their king, and that then Jesus could usher peace into Israel. And then he said, and all of this transpired only three days ago. And certain women of our company astonished us when they returned from the tomb claiming that the body was gone and they had had a vision of angels that proclaimed that Jesus was alive. Cleopas went on to say that certain of their company went to the tomb and found it just as the women said, but did not find the body of Jesus. Jesus then rebukes the closeness of these men's heart. He rebukes their foolishness. He says, foolish to not believe the evidence, the empty tomb, the witness of these certain women, of their company, women that they knew, that they had traveled with, that they knew the integrity. They knew their love for Jesus. They knew their faithfulness and service. They knew their truthfulness. And yet when it came to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, They were afraid to believe these women. Foolish to not believe the testimony of John and Peter, key disciples that had gone to the tomb and found it just as the women said. Then he says, slow of heart to believe. You see, their heart was so closed and it was so slow to open and actually believe all that the prophets wrote. Slow to put the scriptures together with the events that were transpiring. Slow to remember the words of Jesus. Ought not the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory. In other words, Jesus was saying it was fitting. It was right. Ought not the Christ to have suffered. This was the plan of God throughout the ages. When Jesus had come to John the Baptist and asked John to baptize him, John the Baptist had first refused. And Jesus said, John, don't refuse for it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus lived in absolutely righteous life. And this was part of his righteous activity. As we're told in Philippians chapter 2, to uh, obey God completely, even to the point of death, death on a cross. It was fitting. It was the right thing to have suffered the condemnation the brutalizing, the barbarism, and evil of men. Jesus took the worst that men could get in order to give men his best, his righteousness, his salvation, his promises, his glory. And enter into his glory. These things did not keep Christ from glory. They did not discourage qualify him from glory. In fact, they were the door to his glory. He entered into the door of glory by suffering. Jesus then expounded from Genesis right through Malachi, all the things concerning himself. My dad used to say, if ever there was a sermon he wanted to hear, it was this sermon. When Jesus started in Genesis, probably With Genesis 3.15, which is called the Proto-Evangelion Scripture that first foreshadows the need of man for a Redeemer that will crush the head of Satan and in the process be bruised a foreshadowing of the suffering of the Messiah and yet the victory of the Messiah. He no doubt talked about Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac where God stopped Abraham from killing Isaac and provided a lamb. And Abraham named the place on Mount Moriah Jehovah-Jireh or God will provide for in the Mount of the Lord it shall be seen or provided. Perhaps he He talked about the testimony of Joseph, who was betrayed by his brothers, thrown into a pit, then sold to the Ishmaelites, went to Egypt, was betrayed by Potiphar's wife, thrown into prison, but became the prime minister of Egypt and saved Egypt and Israel, the children of Israel and the world at that time from famine. Perhaps he talked about Moses and having crossed the Red Sea, coming to the bitter water and God showing Moses a certain, a specific tree that he was supposed to place upon the water and the water becoming sweet because of the tree that was cut down and put into the water. Perhaps it was the rock that was struck that water might flow out. Perhaps he talked about Balaam's prophecy over Israel. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. Numbers 24, 17. Maybe he talked about the promise to David. The Psalm, Psalm 22. The prophet speaking of the suffering of the Messiah. Isaiah 53, Jeremiah, Daniel. When he spoke of the Messiah being cut off, but not for himself, Ezekiel, Zechariah, and so many more. As Jesus spoke, their hearts were burning. The truth and glory began to dawn on them of the necessity of Jesus, the Messiah's suffering, condemnation, and death. It was all according to the plan of God. They could see It plainly in the scriptures as Jesus spoke to him, and then the reality of Jesus' resurrection as we read in Psalm 16 that he would not allow his Holy One to suffer corruption. Then, of the glory of his person, that they realized that Jesus was greater than they ever imagined than they ever saw or realized when they walked with him, when they heard him, when they saw him heal and work miracles. When they drew near Emmaus, Jesus indicated that he would continue on the road. But Cleopas and the other disciples, still not recognizing him, constrained him to abide with them. Perhaps they were hoping for another sermon. The first had been so good. His word had enthralled them and they were hungry for more. This had been the first comfort they had received since the crucifixion of Jesus. When they sat at the table, Jesus took the bread and he blessed it. Then he broke it and he gave it to them. And at that moment, their eyes were opened. I love this Greek word open because it's the word "diagnogo," and it means to be opened down to the soul. It is a complete opening. It it means not just seeing, but perceiving and comprehending. It was down to their very soul. Their eyes were open. Their hearts were open. So, so far we have an open tomb, open eyes and open hearts. And the moment that their eyes were opened, Jesus vanished from their sight and they said to one another, verse 32, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? Previously, before Jesus knew, Cleopas and the other disciple were talking only of what appeared to be closed doors, disappointments from the religious community. Disappointments about Israel's redemption closed doors to Jesus' ministry. But as Jesus spoke to them about the doorway that he had entered in, the doorway that the Messiah had to walk through to glory, the doorway of suffering, the doorway of fulfilling all the scriptures from Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, Jesus opened up their hearts and put a fire in them, burning with the truth. Jesus then opened their eyes to see him. It was only then that they realized that greater doors were open to them than had been shut. Doors of resurrection, doors of life. Luke 24, verses 33 through 43 speaks of a locked room. Cleopas and the other disciple rose up that very hour and went to Jerusalem. I wonder how fast that seven-mile trip back to Jerusalem was compared to this seven-mile trip to Emmaus. They found the disciples in a locked room, according to John 20, verse 19. They were actually hiding. The disciples were afraid, and they were perplexed. They had the testimony of the women. And then Peter had come back, claiming to have met with and seen the risen Lord. Cleopas and the other disciple entered the room and shared their story, their testimony about meeting Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And now those in this locked room were trying to process everything when suddenly Jesus is in their midst. He's not on the ceiling looking down on them. He's standing right in the very midst of these disciples. No walls, no locked doors could keep Jesus out. He stands in the midst of them and he says, peace be to you. Peace. This is the same peace that Paul talks about in Philippians chapter four, verse seven, the peace that passes understanding, the peace that will rule our hearts and minds. This is that peace. And he says, peace to you. He's not saying condemnation or shame on you for ditching me at Gethsemane or denying me in my trial or turning from me while I was on the cross or hiding in this room. There's no such talk. It's peace. He's saying, I'm coming in peace, in reconciliation to the heavenly father I'm bringing you peace, that peace that is comforting, that peace that guards, that peace that is divine, that peace that permeates our beings, that peace that holds us, that pervasive serenity that assures us that God is in complete, compassionate, caring control of our lives. That's the peace. And this peace, he says, peace. To you, peace to you, upon you, with you, in you. Reconciliation with God is now accomplished because of Jesus' death and resurrection. The price of redemption has been met. They can close the door of their fear. They don't have to be fear of fear of Jesus being angry with them or fear of condemnation of their own failures or fear of believing. That if they, if they really grasp onto Jesus, they'll be disappointed. There's no more fear of disappointment. Jesus went to the very source of their fears and doubts. He says, why? Why? Why are your hearts troubled and doubts arise? He says, I'm not a ghost. He knew that they were afraid to believe. They thought he was a spirit or an apparition or a vision or a ghost. They had done the same thing when they were on the boat, as Matthew recorded it in Matthew 14, verse 26. When he walked on the water toward them, they had cried out and thought he was a ghost because they didn't know that he had power over the waves and could walk upon the water. It was easier for them to believe in ghost than the risen Lord, Jesus invited his disciples to touch him. John the disciple would rather recall this in 1 John one one when he wrote that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life. Jesus said, "Feel me." To Thomas in John chapter twenty, he said, "Put your fingers into my hands. See the holes where the nails were bent." Were Put your hand into my side. Feel where this spear went through. Feel it. Touch me. I'm not a ghost. To further prove his reality, Jesus asked them, Do you have any food? And they brought him some broiled fish and honey, and he ate it in their sight. The locked room was meant to keep all fear out but it was no impediment for jesus jesus has no closed doors he alone closes and opens doors but as you see jesus resurrected body it also shows us what we will be like first john chapter 4 verse 2 john says beloved we are now children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him like He is. We are not going to be, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, unembodied spirits. But we're going to have a body that is fit for our resurrected life. A body that is made for the conditions of heaven and the conditions of an earth where Jesus reigns in glory. A body that eats, a body that has no impediments like walls or tombs or death, a glorious body. Jesus then opens their understanding and opens the scriptures, opens all the promises of God and opens heaven to these disciples. As Jesus explains to disciples That all things written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning him must be fulfilled. He opens their understanding that he might open the scriptures to them. Without open understanding, the scriptures will remain closed even to us. Think about it. The chief priests and the scribes who copied the Bible, the lawyers who studied the law, and the Pharisees who sought to live by the law and the scriptures. It was close to them. They never recognized Jesus. They never saw prophecy being fulfilled before their eyes, even though it was obvious. It was absolutely obvious. You see, it's important. It's possible. It is absolutely possible to read the scripture, but have our understanding closed. So it doesn't apply to our lives. We, we compartmentalize it. We relegate it or we think it's for others and we never see that it's for us. So Jesus opens their understanding. Because without this open understanding, when we come to the scriptures, we will only see rules, rituals, battles, brutality, and obligations. But those with open understanding coming to the scriptures perceive a gracious creator, a rebellious mankind, a righteous and deadly breach between the two. The son of God coming to breach the gap through his sacrificial death to bring man back into reconciliation with God. And they perceive the glorious plans of God that are yet to unfold. Jesus opened the scriptures to them as he did to Cleopas and the other disciple on the Emmaus Road. And we realize that the volume of the book was written about Jesus, even as it says in Psalm 40, verse 6 through 9. Every story in the Bible is a story of man's failure and a cry for a redeemer. Every story is the story of the need of a mediator between God and man. A mediator righteous enough to be in the presence of God, but compassionate enough to understand the walk and life of sinful man. Every battle in the Bible shows the brutality of men and the fallen state of nations, and every cruel act shows the deception of man and the need to be delivered from himself and his own nature. The Bible, by way of example, presents Jesus, the Savior, through heroes of the Bible, through the temple sacrifices, and prophesies his coming, his compassion, his suffering, his resurrection, his rapture of the church, and his return to rule and reign. Then Jesus opens the promises resulting from his suffering and death, verses 46 through 47. Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you." Now we have the door of God's promises open to us. This door was closed because of sin. Every promise of God was conditional in the Old Testament. If you obey, then you can receive this promise. But no one was ever good enough, obedient enough, righteous enough until Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He fulfilled the righteous requirement of the Law. He obeyed God completely from his heart, his mind, his soul, his spirit, his entire being. He said, I always do those things which please my Father. And only Jesus was worthy of inheriting the promises of God. And then he wrote those promises in his will that should he die, we would inherit those promises. And then he died on the cross that we might inherit. The promises that only he deserved, that only he earned, that only he merited. And the promise of the Holy Spirit and all the promises of God are now ours because of Jesus. Heaven has been opened to us because of Jesus. Death is no longer a closed door, but a transport. Jesus led the disciples as far as Bethany, and he conversed with them on the way, answering their questions about Israel. You see, they wanted to know, they were at the closed door, when is Israel going to become a nation? And Jesus said, that's a closed door right now. You know, they wanted to say, Lord, when are you going to open that door? Is now the time to open that door? And Jesus said this, In Acts 1, verses 7 through 8, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. You see, there are certain closed doors to us now. The closed doors of knowing the times and the seasons. We can know a little bit. We can glimpse it. But we can't be professionals because the Father has put that information, that knowledge, that door in his own hand. But this is where our concentration is supposed to be. Here's the open door, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit is come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. God has opened the door of of His promises and the promise of the power of the Holy Spirit to make us witnesses all over the world. It's an open door. Jesus then blessed his disciples, lifting up his hands. And as he blessed them, he was parted from them, and heaven opened and received Jesus from their sight. Heaven is now open to us because Jesus opened heaven to us. We're told in Ephesians that he led captivity captive and led them right up to heaven. What is your response to open doors? The disciples previously to the resurrection had had a concentration on closed doors. And closed door concentration can lead to fear, frustration, despair, disillusionment, isolation, anger, resentment, misunderstanding, and spiritual stagnation. Whereas the disciples, realizing the divine open doors they had through Jesus, were told in verse 52 they worshiped and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Yes, God closes doors. But remember, every time God closes doors, he has opened glorious and effectual doors for us. And we need to look for those doors that God has opened to us. We are no longer ever separated from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, because of the doors that he has opened. Through Christ, we have great and effectual doors open to us. And the open tomb, the open hearts, the open eyes, the open understanding, the open scriptures, the open promise, the open heaven... Only give testimony of the beginning of the glories to come as we walk through the doors God has opened to us through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. My friends, don't keep knocking, crying, despairing, sitting outside, barking at the closed doors in your life. Like the women, quit despairing over the impediments that aren't there God already rolled away the stone. You won't find Jesus among the dead. He is among the living, like Cleopas and the other disciple. In your conversation, don't let it be sad, because Jesus even now is drawing near to you and wants to open the door of your heart and your eyes to see that He is with you, and you're not in, you're not in grief. That you're in glory. He wants to open your eyes to the truer reality of life abundant that he has already given you. Like the other disciples in the closed room, he wants to open your understanding, his word, his promises, and heaven itself and all its resources to you. These things says he who is holy, he who is true, He who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the closed doors in our life. I pray that you would give us an appreciation for these closed doors, but the power to walk away and let you keep all the doors in your right hand. Lord, that we wouldn't seek to pry or fret over how we can open closed doors or, Lord, just grieve over them. But, Lord, we would see and rejoice and praise you and worship you over all the great and effectual doors that you have opened to us. Lord, some of my sisters here are not cognizant of the open doors that you have given them. And so, Lord, I pray For us today, as your women, that Lord, you would open the tomb, that you would open our hearts, that you would open our eyes, that you would open our understanding, that you might open the scripture and your promises and heaven itself to us, that we might be women who walk through the doors that you open with worship and praise and adoration and glory. Lord, work this in us by the power of the resurrected Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. God bless you.